So welcome to the next episode of Future Creatives. Now this is a podcast where I interview change makers and badass creatives that cross my intersection of dance, theatre, commercial real estate, digital and community. You're going to love this interview. It's one I did with Daniel Banks in 2015. Um, and we talk about hip hop theatre and spirituality and how it relates to community healing and how it relates to and, and basically respect for the art as well. So it's from a series of interviews that I did with other hip hop theatre pioneers. Emil YX Janssen from Cape Town, South Africa, runs Hip Hop in Darbo and Heal the Hood. Anthony Ajea that runs is the artistic director of Sea Revolution. Robbie Graham, artistic director of Southport. The OG himself, Quickstep. Now I want you to like, subscribe and share because that's how we grow and inspire. Because this is a, this has been a, a long time coming and uh, this is a, a special treat for all you people that are going to watch this. Um, I've known Daniel now for seven, eight years. Long time. And we met at um, Decibel in Birmingham in 2007, 2007, 2008, where Daniel was speaking there. And um, I heard that he got the, the crowd to start and get there, uh, come together by, by teaching them some beatbox. And I'm like, I've got to meet this man. Because, you, know, you know, sometimes people that are attend these sort of events that, like Decibel that are watching, that, you know, are watching like this, find it very difficult to loosen up, but Daniel found a way and I, I knew I had to meet him from then. So Daniel, please um, tell us a little bit about about yourself and, and how we how we met. And we've got a few questions that we're gonna go through, but just that intro would be great for people out there to kind of know how instrumental you've been. Well, um, thank you, Kwesi. It's uh, I'm I'm humbled and honored to um, be spending this time with you and with your viewers. Uh, we were actually, uh, if I remember correctly, I saw your showcase for um, was it boxing at that point? It was still boxing, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, and uh, I, I must have been in a conversation with somebody who said you have to meet this guy, and then they introduced us and I just remember standing in the lobby of the theater, probably in front of the bar or something. And we just like started talking and, and in my memory, like everything else just disappeared. We were just talking and talking and talking. And I think there were lots of people who are trying to come up and talk to you and you're like, go away, go away. <laughs> and um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, as I think we both know, it was uh, destined to happen. We're, we're definitely kin on some artistic and spiritual level and uh um from i think from then on then i got an email from your your then executive director saying would you like to come and work with us and there was no hesitation um it was really funny because she was like well you know if it's okay and if you've got the time and da, da, da. i was like girl i will make the time i will you know i will bring out those bulldozers and um and you know make the time so and we did and it was great and you know i learned so much from working with you too, because it was, um, in a funny way, it was the first time uh, collaborating that deeply with someone who I who I didn't have a, a like long history with. So um, you know, so I also came up against my own questions about how present to be in the room, how much voice, how much to sit back, and you you were just like, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on, and I was like, well, I don't know. Like, you know, let me, but certainly by the end of the process, I think we were um, pretty symbiotic and, and mm. you're kind of Siamese twins uh, directing traffic. 
Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> that a bit of a disaster. But it, but it definitely wasn't. So yeah, Daniel, um, because that, that, that's your in, introduction and we'd, it's re, I'd really like to kind of talk a little bit about um, the book that you wrote, Say Word, and some of the work you've been doing in Africa. Great, that's a big question. Um, so Say Word, Voices from Hip Hop Theater, which I happen to have a copy of right here because <laughs> you told me plug you it. plug it. So. Uh, is the first critical anthology of hip-hop theater uh, plays. There's been a previous anthology, um, a very good anthology, uh, that some friends of mine and colleagues um, edited, but this, uh, this has a very lengthy introduction with the history of hip-hop, the history of hip-hop theater. It's actually the first um, that I know of, the first fully documented history of hip-hop theater that mentions all of the early pioneers. Um, there were some early pieces that were written um, uh, by pioneers before they knew about each other. And this one actually brings all of them together. Um, there are eight plays in the anthology and one play uh, online um, because we wanted to have a very uh, visual storyboard because it's a, a beatbox, um, I guess you could call it a beatbox opera or an or a integrated beatbox performance with Yuri Lane called um, From Tel Aviv to Ramallah. And um, very beautiful work, uh, which I believe there's some clips of on YouTube. And there's an introduction um, that I wrote to each of the sections. And then at the end of the book, because um, you know I really wanted this not to be sort of just my voice uh, in between the plays. I wanted I wanted it more of a collective. I invited some of the pioneers um, of the movement, uh, such as Danny Hawk, who founded the Hip Hop Theater Festival. Issa Davis, who was one of the first people to write about hip hop uh, theater. Um, Holly Bass, who's been a really um, integral, uh, integral curator of um, hip hop theater work over the years and used to work with the festival. Um, Sarah Jones, uh, who is, has also been one of the first hip hop theater performers and Will Power, um, mm -hmm. who, uh, um, who I would say arguably has in production values taken the form the furthest. Um, I asked Holly to curate a, uh, an online wiki with them where they discussed, uh, they kind of had a dialogue online um, about uh, the, the current state of hip hop theater, where it came from, the current state, where it was going. And uh, so that was, um, that's actually the last word in the book. So the last word is not my voice, but it's their voices. So, and you know, they're, they're, they're close colleagues and people that I've worked with over the years and whom I've also, you know, learned a lot from. Um, the festival, I, I wasn't even aware I was doing hip hop theater. I was just doing theater that appealed to me and my generation and my uh, uh, community of artists and that addressed issues uh, that we thought needed addressing in the language and in the rhythms that we speak in and listen to. and. Um, um, so I got a call in uh, about 2001, I think, from the Hip Hop Theater Festival. They, they had started in 2002, uh, asking if um, one of the pieces uh, that I was directing um, and touring uh, could, could be part of the festival. And um, it was interesting because I hadn't really thought in terms of that I was doing hip hop theater, I, I, what I thought I was doing, you know, I, and I actually hadn't heard the term prior to the, the previous year when the festival um, started. 
Because you, you, have have you have this thing, you have this thing where you say you were, you were making hip hop theater before it had a name, right? Yeah. So yeah, I was gonna say that. So um, so the, I had been to the festival in the first year, and it was amazing and just inspiring, and the audiences were phenomenal. And I can't remember what I saw that year, but I hadn't, you know, and I knew a lot of the artists and knew them through the theater world, and I had known Danny Hawk before, you know, he went when he was just starting out doing his solo work. Um, so I was very excited about this movement, but wasn't really clear that that's what I was doing because to me I was just making theater that appealed to my generation, my community of artists, um, using the, the rhythms and the language and the sounds and the issues that that we were passionate about. And for some reason, I just didn't make the connection that that was that that was hip hop theater per se. And um, and so the uh, Camila Forbes, who who's the artistic director of the festival, um, I, I said, well, what pieces are you talking about? And she started rattling off a couple of the pieces that I was working on, Goddess City, um, uh, uh, Ghetto Punch with uh, Anthony Sparks. And, and I suddenly, I, I had this sort of epiphany that, that the work that, again, my community of artists that we had been struggling to do so hard and that was not getting, let's say, mainstream attention um, I even lost an agent over doing this work because he didn't feel it was commercial enough. Um, uh, I, bet, I bet he's kicking himself now. Uh, <laughs> he didn't think there was enough money in it and, um, and, and it was too, too complicated, too far uh, outside the box for him to figure out how to negotiate contracts and things on. That, that, that's the perils of being a pioneer, right? So, um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, um, no, what was, what was I saying about that? About she she was reeling reeling off the pieces that she wanted to to, to come to to the um, theater. Right, right, and and so so um, right. So we were just doing right. That's what that was what I was thinking. That we were just doing work that um, was really, uh, I would say, in some ways, being ignored by um, by the, the the mainstream at at that at that time. Um, uh, I think also the politics of it were probably very challenging for the mainstream, and certainly yes. some of the um, some of the aesthetics uh, might have been a little challenging. Um, a lot of nonlinear work, um, a lot of very physically based work, a lot of very po uh, poetry based work. Which is funny that 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 spoken word and poetry based work would be um, dif difficult for the mainstream theaters to embrace, because of course they would embrace Shakespeare or something like that. But you know, yeah. we we know that story. Um, whilst you're on that subject, it kind of I'm kind of skipping forward in some of the in some of the questions, but it's quite poignant that, that you're at that point. So, for me, it's like I, I wanted to ask you the question: Do you think any director can work in hip hop theatre? You know, what what makes it unique? What do they? What does somebody that's working in, in hip hop theatre need to be need to have need to be aware of? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think. Um, I would say I would I would back the question up a little bit and say what does it take for a director to work in a type of theater uh, that represents a culture from which she or he does not come? Yeah. Um, because I think when you're talking about hip hop theater, you're talking about a culturally specific theater. Mm -hmm. So as we cr and 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 culture to me is not just ethnicity. I think gender has culture. I think sexuality has culture. I think um, geography. Uh, um, has culture, someone from the North directing a Southern play or the South directing a Northern play. Um, certainly um, the spectrum of ability, 
there, there's just uh, class has culture. You know, how does how does somebody direct a play across um, class lines that they they may not have information about certain codes within certain classes? Um, and I think what's so interesting is that I, I don't really think that that question has been so um, rigorously posed around uh, directing Restoration Comedy or directing Noel Coward or directing Ibsen. Um, I think suddenly the question becomes this huge sticking point when we're talking about directing across uh, specifically ethnicity because um, I, I still think that at least in the West and, 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 and probably not just in the West, but I'll, for the moment, I'll just speak about the West because of the UK context and the US context. Mm. Um, I think we, our countries and still have not worked out um, the, uh, have not worked out the, the, the legacy and trauma of colonialism. And so, um, so our ability to think cross ethnically um, is bound up by guilt, shame, rage, um, uh, uh, violence, trauma. And, um, and as we know, when those things are up for us, we can't think clearly. Yeah. So I think that this, that this um, you know, I, I think that for, for um, you know, as long as there's been actual theater buildings with plays being written and, and actors acting in them and directors directing and designers designing, uh, unless everyone is telling her his own story, we are working cross-culturally as directors, always. Yeah, now, the challenge is that specifically with hip hop theater or even with theater of the African diaspora or Latino theater, that Unfortunately, and it's kind of mind-boggling because of the training that most of us have received as directors, or at least the, the, our understanding of our role as directors, um, people do tend to do much less research when they're working cross-ethnically than when, than when they're working, you know, I mean, someone who's directing uh, um, restoration comedy is going to do a lot of research on manners Mm. on gestures, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, costume designers are gonna know exactly how the roughs should be and why the roughs are there and what the yeah. stuff is all about and, you know, and, 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 and yet, so that, so huge amounts of resources are dedicated to telling those stories, quote unquote, accurately. For fear of, for fear of offending people. I, or just because that's the job. Of getting it wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's the job. The job is to tell the story as, as best as you possibly can. Mm. Um, I don't see, in my experience, um, directors uh, and writers who are outside of hip-hop culture working as hard to understand um, mm. hip-hop, to understand uh, the culture, to understand the cultural circumstances, the history, um, to understand the aesthetics. Uh, you know, if if a if a if a writer is working with remixing, or working with um, sampling, um, or working with a gestural language that has either popping or locking, you know, as a director, you better know, or a choreographer, you better know the difference between popping and locking, mm -hmm. um, and not just throw something that looks hip hop to you up there because probably what looks hip hop to you isn't 
very authentic because most of what we see the appropriation of hip hop in, po in popular culture is is some watered down version. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when you get somebody like yourself or Quick Step and Rockefeller in the U.S. or Jonesy D. You know, talking about the history of these dance forms and the history of these movements and all of the things that came into them, and um, and and really connecting the aesthetics to the politics because that's the other thing is that in hip hop there's nothing aesthetic that does not have some political, um, yeah. you know relation yeah. even if the creators didn't think about it that way i mean even you know the folks who created faders and and and, and contemporary uh well i was gonna say contemporary djing but contemporary djing is with files now and not not, not vinyl <laughs> but you know but but even the necessity out of which that was created or the fact that some of those pioneers were in technical schools because they were quote-unquote tech tracked um, which yeah. is something that high schools did and still do is they decide who's actually going to be able to have a white collar job and who's going to have a blue collar job. And, um, you know, so, so some of those early cats were, um, were studying um, uh, electronics yeah. and, and mechanics yeah. to be uh, engineers and, and, and fix cars and be electricians and things. And they took that knowledge and applied it to um, the DJ table. Yeah. And that's and out of that comes scratching, and out of that comes backspinning, and out of that comes beat matching, and out of that comes all the aesthetics of hip hop. So, even if they weren't thinking of it politically in retrospect, we have to understand that that's where it yeah. came from. That's and where there's came. a certain amount of respect that's due for that. So, when you put at the beginning of a so-called hip hop theater play, as I've seen, when you put a DJ on stage who is not actually live and and is sort of lip syncing, yeah. you will, yeah. <laughs> miming being a DJ while there's some other track that clearly has no um, connection to yeah. what the DJ, DJ on stage is doing, you know, so the DJ becomes this cosmetic thing yeah. that disrespects the culture, that disrespects the history, that yeah. disrespects the work of the pioneers. Yeah. Um, so if you don't know the gravitas of that history, you might make some choices that you feel are just aesthetic, um, but if you're making them without understanding the political subtext of those aesthetics, then you're actually disrespecting um, a culture and people. So I think that the question of respect and understanding what respect means um, is, is really important in this work. I think that a lot of times people think of respect in terms of the way that we're raised in the West of saying please and thank you and you know shutting the door behind you and putting down the toilet seat and those kinds of things like that's you know that's sort of a a, a surface level um, of respect. Okay, um, but I think that that to that to do this work means to engage in a much more profound and deeper level of respect, which really has to do with spirituality and really has to do with. Um, the, the uh, you know one of the things that I write a lot about in the book is the power of the word um, in 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 hip hop culture um, you know derived from West African uh, Afro uh, Afrocentric um, uh, notions of the word nomo the power of the word to actually change the the, the universe and that if um, and if we're not if if as artists and if the artists who are working with us are not taking um, are not taking the word that seriously, are not taking what we do that seriously, you know, yeah. with an understanding, not that we hope that this is going to change the order of the cosmos, but that actually yeah. every toe, you know, dipped in the water creates ripples that reach yeah. far beyond our view. Yeah. If we don't take that that seriously and we don't take um, our responsibility to our audiences and our responsibility to the people whose stories we're telling that seriously, 
um, and we don't have integrity, we're not doing it wholly, which is the, you know, the origin of the root integrity is to be whole. Um, then. Mm. Yeah, then I think that, that's a whole, that's a, that's a whole other interview about why that I, I personally think why that's not taken seriously, because yeah. if it is changing in the universe and it is changing reality and is bringing people together, all those things, there's, there's a reason why that's not promoted. There's a reason why it can complete completely change things and it is a when they talk about bringing cultures together and people together i mean hip-hop has brought brings so many different types of people together it's on a level where they can begin to create an understanding mm. where i don't know for anything else that does that so i think that that's you know i think that's also um perhaps um unintentionally or intentionally one of the reasons that this work keeps getting watered down or um, sort of given to the wrong um, uh, caretaker uh, because if it is diluted, then its power is diluted and then it becomes a commodity that can be bought and sold rather than something that actually has some metaphysical uh, um, um, power in the world. Uh, yeah. And of course, of course, anything spiritual uh, and anything that um, privileges humanity and um, privileges peace, which is, uh, we can talk about, you know, the, the peacemaking origins of hip hop, um, is, is gonna fly in the face of, of, of capitalism because sort of mm. the, the, the unethical side of capitalism is all about exploitation. And, mm. um, and, and, and we're, we see that you know, widespread and, and we allow a certain amount of it, you know, nobody's boycotted cell phones recently, but you know, the, the, the minerals that are mined for those cell phones um, are part of a, a global system of exploitation. Probably the technology that we're using here to talk about exploitation has in, exploited workers somewhere in the world. Um, so, so there's, there's a, there's, there's a kind of a being out of integrity there as well. And, and, and I certainly don't, don't know the answer because I also feel like being completely off the grid um, doesn't allow a certain kind of work to happen, a certain kind of progressive work to happen, which is very much yeah. about being in communication as widely as possible with people. So we have we have these inherent contradictions, and I think that I think that the the hip hop generations um, are uh, are both. Um, feel the need to ask these questions and willing to live with the contradictions and not, not have there be a, an easy resolution tied up in a bow. And I don't really know that, that a capitalist system allows us to live inside of contradictions because it's very difficult to sell products when there's um, contradictory information. I mean, you know, I think about, I don't know if you have them in the UK now, but certainly within the past five to 10, 10 years in the US, um, the amount of drug commercials for pharmaceuticals uh, that is, are shown on TV is astounding. I mean, it's like, I would say one out of every three or four commercials is for a pharmaceutical. And at the end, it's like there's this contest of who can hire the spokesperson who speaks the fastest or how can they manipulate, you know, the recording to speak the fastest to say, you know, side effects may include right? So they have to do that legally, but I, th I think they use logic or Cubase and just say the word slowly and then they just speed it up. To speed it up, absolutely. You know, um, and, but, it, but I find it hysterical because 
we're, we're a nation of ostriches. Like we'll listen to all of that and yet, you know, continue to eat our McDonald's and drink our soda and eat our potato chips and take a drug that might cause blindness <laughs> or death or suicide <laughs> um, because we don't want to change our eating habits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the contradictions of capitalism. Crazy. You know? But I think that something like hip-hop theater, which is so fully embodied and asks these difficult questions and has, has actual bodies in the space. I mean, there are no hip-hop theater plays that I, you know, that I think, you know, because again, my definition of hip-hop theater has to do with what contributes to the culture, not what um, borrows or steals from the culture, but what actually, what conversations um, put back into the culture. Um, right. And you know, there's no piece of work that does that that doesn't have actual bodies on the stage in evidence, um, uh, being 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 interrogated and asked questions about. I mean, in this book alone, Deepa Jor uh, by Chadwick Boseman, uh, you you have actually a woman who is battling uh, um, a, a, an eating disorder, and she is um, wrestling with the questions of her body waxing and waning as her love for her, uh, her, her mate um, who was shot and killed by police as, as her grief waxes and wanes. And you know, so there's an actual mapping of her grief through her eating disorder. Um, uh, 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 a dreamscape by Kirby Hines, um, similarly dealing with the police shooting, um, is a young woman on the stage who's been shot numerous times doing a dance um, at, at each section. It's an episodic um, um, section where the DJ is the coroner and the, and the coroner is, is, is dissecting her body and she's doing a dance to try to reclaim each part of her body that was assaulted by um, these, uh, the, these police bullets. Um, so, so we have bodies in evidence. It's not, you know, I know when I was coming up in, in theater, um, we, we used to always complain about talking heads theater, where you know you have the heads yeah. talking and sounding yeah. Yeah. beautiful, but really no bodies underneath yeah. them. Um, so, so this work is incontrovertible. Um, um, you know, and even if, if you think today about the hashtag that's used so much in the US about um, Black Lives Matter, you know, not that all of the plays are specifically about um, African heritage bodies. You know, there's also uh, plays in this book about Latinos. Obviously, Yuri's play is looking at um, uh, uh, what happens on either side of the security fence, which is, you know, a wall um, in, in Palestine and Israel. And, you know, those are brown bodies as well, um, uh, configured, configured differently from, you know, perhaps the way that some conversations um, exist in, in, in this country. But, but these are, these are quest, you know, this, these are plays that ask the audience to consider um, bodies um, in a historical trajectory and what's happening to them today. And it's really about people trying to reclaim their bodies um, from a system that, uh, that exploits them, um, erases them, invisibilizes them, um, uh, you know, and, and does constant violence to them either through microaggressions or very real daily aggressions, um, large scale aggressions. So um, I, think that's, I think that's the power of the work. And I think that's also why certain institutions feel they need to water it down by putting somebody, um, putting somebody in charge who doesn't really fully get it 
because mm. to fully get it would to ha- would be to have the roof blow off the theater. Mm. Um, and to fully get it would, would be to do it in such a way that attracts, uh, that probably um, alienates a little bit or they're afraid it will alienate uh, their core financial base, um, yeah. but would attract an entire other audience that they don't yeah. really know how to manage. Or how to get to, or how to, how to well, attract you know, The thing is, is that all of us as artists, we know how to access that audience. And we walk into the theaters and we say, we, you know, this is what you need to do to access that audience. And, and it's funny because we've all sat around and we've had these conversations where we, we, we have that conversation and then, and then they make excuses. Well, we did that with a show 10 years ago and it didn't work. Or, you know, we, you know, we tried going to church audiences for My Fair Lady and that didn't work. You know, it, it's just- it, it, everybody on our mailing list, come on. <laughs> so there's these insane reasons why people won't try the things that, that we say. So, you know, um, Will Power and, 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 um, and Stephen Mildred from Universes, Steve Sapp and Mildred Ruiz and, and Danny Hawk and, and, and all of these folks tell the stories of when they're at these theaters, whether it be Berkeley Rep or, you know, that they are out during the day going into neighborhoods with postcards and, 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 and doing, uh, you know, engaging with potential audiences uh, in that grassroots way, because that's, you know, yeah. selling mixtapes out of the trunk of your car. I mean, that's, it's the one-to-one person-to-person hustle and entrepreneurialism. And it's not just about hustling for, for numbers, it's about if I'm going to be in the city, and if this theater hasn't um, done the things that I've recommended, then I'm going to I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to do them because this is because this is about ritual. This is about creating ritual spaces, and um, and 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 the power of a ritual space is that it can yeah. lead to healing. Yeah, because I even think that even in those towns and in those cities that you go to, if you had a network of people that were connected to the community that were, and the theatre was connected to them, then obviously that brings a little bit more validation rather than the theatre trying to just reach to the community because it doesn't always work like that. But Yeah, I think, I think the reason is, is that, the, you know, the model of these theatres is a very old model that, that predates so much of, of today's social and political realities. And yeah. so, um, so, so these theaters, essentially, they exist as, um, uh, as uh, it's, it's about selling, right? I mean, you have, I mean, it's, 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 I'm not criticizing them, I'm just saying this is the model, right? It's not that it's a yeah. bad model or a good model. I mean, I don't think it's the most relevant model, but it is, it is a model, which is you have a product, you sell it, and you need to sell it to the people who can buy the product. So if that is, if that is the sum total of your, um, of your business plan, then you have a fiscal responsibility to sell it to, to make the most money. Now then you add in a sort of a dependency on funding, whether it be government or foundation funding, and then you start having to uh, it's sort of like patting your head and rubbing your stomach. You have to then now do something new in order to win those funds. And that thing is about engaging, oftentimes about engaging with underserved communities. Mm. Um, but to engage meaningfully with those communities is, is, is often in direct conflict 
with the money-making mission because you now are serving two masters. You're serving two audiences. Mm-hmm. And what theaters have been looking for, and I think quite courageously, and, it, and it's, it's, it is a trial and error process, and I think some people are doing it, um, are, are, are in a position to take bigger risks than others, or some people just take bigger risks than others, is they're looking to see, is there a Venn diagram overlap between serving underserved communities with, you know, this half of the building and the education outreach. I mean, even the notion of outreach is very colonial, right? But, you know, so now it's being called engagement, but we've just switched up words, but how we actually switched up behavior. Um, You know, and then this is, and then this side of the theater, which is about selling tickets. So where's the Venn diagram? Where's the overlap? Where's the hallway where the people working in those two kind of very distinct missions get to meet and chop it up and figure out where, you know, how, how that can happen. But the, but the, from my perspective, the real problem is that no one's dialoguing with the audiences. Yeah. A lot of decisions are being made for each of those groups in, in this sort of patronizing colonial fashion. There's, there's something that I've not spoken to you, to you about, which I'm obviously will do off, off air, which I'm, creating this, um, I'm creating a new paradigm for artists to exist in, where you don't need a critic to rubbish your show who doesn't understand it, and you don't need an artistic director of a building to validate that you're good, and you don't need funding to validate that you're good. Mm-hmm. It's really about the thing that you're talking about, about the audiences connecting with the artists. And if, the, and if you can't be facilitated in a building, it's about finding your own. So this is where my kind of love for digital the arts and real estate is coming together. So I have a master plan, but um, I don't know how easy it's going to be to undo that system that exists and kind of promotes those same things that we've been used to rather than being letting people kind of say, well, actually, this is what we want to see. Rather than than you as an artistic director, I mean, years ago, before we had the wonders of the internet, you know, culturally, they had people in different parts of the world. They could go, oh, yeah, this is, go and take a look at this. They, you know, they'd be the ambassador for the arts. But now you just go on YouTube and you type in whatever you want to see. So that authority right. is, no, is no longer there where they think, oh, what would my audience like to see? Rather than saying, what would you like to see? I think that's probably why immersive theater works so well for current generations is that just like with, you know, just how you can surf different sites, it's, which is like going to different rooms, you know, when you have something like um, sleep no more where they've, you know, punch drunk has taken over a building that moves the audience from room to room. And there's a different, um, there's a different scenario happening in each room. It's, it's a, a little bit mirrors what it's like to surf. It's just, you're doing it with your body and not just with your, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. house. But um, I think that's brilliant, Crazy. The one thing I would say is that, I, you know, my, my, my thought without really having any more information about what you're talking about is don't worry about the old models because as, as, as time <laughs> shows, everything cycles. And, and, and I think it's our job to create more relevant models. And then those old models will either adapt or they will fold and new things will be built up. I don't see, you know, I think a lot of these institutions are extremely worried about survival. Like yes. X theater closes yes. that there's some kind of travesty because there will be nothing to serve that community. Um, but I actually think that, um, that that's a little, a bit 
of um, again a, a, a numbers driven model, a, a money driven model, because the reality is is that when something old does die, it leaves room for something new to be born. And so I think that part of the challenge is, is that there's, there are resources out there. I won't say that there are enough resources, but there are enough to do something. Um, but but they're being, um, it's like having programs running in the background on your computer and you just can't use the program you want to use because these other programs are running in the background. You know, I think that there are, that you're right, that there are these institutions um, that, that, are, that are sapping our resources. But I, but I really, um, I really feel that it's important that we, you know, bless them, let them go with God, let them do what they're going to do. And eventually they will run their own course. And in the meantime, we've been doing our own thing. And, and, and this is how a healthy ecology, you know, works. Yeah. Is that biodiversity. Because they've been, they've been instrumental in getting us to this point, but yeah. actually getting us any further than this point, it might be a struggle for them where you say, like where you say, we need new models. We need new ways of doing, doing things in order for it not to be, just uh, uh, you know that that word where, where you were talk, talking about earlier, where everything is kind of just middle of the road, right. and you, you know you'll you'll put that company on because you know it's going to sell tickets. But this is the fiftieth time they've been to the city. It's like, come on! It's like you know that an artistic director might not know who the you know a, a really big Polish punk band is in Poland, but they've got a massive Polish community that live around the theatre. Right. Well, how would the, the artistic director know? Well, if they had some kind of out, I say outreach again, but some information about right. what else is going on for their community and allowing their community to be part of the building. And, that, and I think that's always been the desire for a lot of theatres. But like you say, it goes back to the money and the way that they can, the way they can survive. But increasingly, they're going to have to start being more... Um, connected to the community because the funding is disappearing right, right. Rap rapidly and i'm not you know again i just want to be clear that i'm not slamming these folks for the model that they inherited because they absolutely anybody who's in this yeah. position has inherited this model but um at the same time um you know and, and also i think you and i have both benefited greatly from um from work in connection with these institutions both in terms of what we've learned that we've integrated into our own practice and also mm -hmm. things that we've learned um through contrast and saying well i i just wouldn't do it that way that's just not me um okay. so i don't and again so i don't think it's about that there's a right way and a wrong way but i do think it's about what's working and what's not working and if our you know i think you and i have similar priorities that we we understand the sacredness of this work which um, you know goes back to uh, some DNA connection to ritual and um, and and orature and um, the power of the artist or the shaman or the the person in the community that is in some ways the um, the, um, the barometer of what's happening you know in a society and so we're we're you know we're part of a movement which I think hip hop and hip hop theater are you know, to, 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 to take a hard left on this highway with, you know, with this, this Mack truck behind us and, and, and really try to um, take us back to a place where the arts, um, where the arts are, are, are directly connected to well-being, 
um, and to, to spiritual well-being, to, to physical um, uh, health well-being, to mental well-being, to interpersonal well-being. Um, and so, so that's just a different, we just have a different, um, I want to say a different approach, but, I would, but, but maybe we have a different ethos around this. And it's not that our ethos is any better or any worse. This is our birthright. This is what you and I were born to do. And other people were born to do other things. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think we just have to be really clear that we're, that we're being true to what, to what our purpose is. Um, and, and not so much worry about whether other, you know, what other people's purposes are, because yeah. I think we spend, I, I, you know, I feel like there's so much energy given to attacking other institutions, criticizing them, tearing them down, trying to figure out ways to get them to change. Um, you know, if you think about a, a, a romantic relationship, I mean, that's, that's death, you know, trying to get your partner to change. Uh, you just, you accept it and you either, you know, live under the same roof or you don't. And um, um, so, so I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm in a, in a different headspace right now, especially where I am regionally where, you know, we don't have any of, we have a few of those big institutions, but they're not, I would say they are far outnumbered by people doing good work on the ground, um, you know, in, 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 in community, rural community settings where people have actual day-to-day -day needs, um, water, yeah. electricity, health, uh, education. Yeah. And so it really, um, it's kind of shifted my thinking about where, where to put my energies and what to worry about and what not to worry about. Because, yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. And in case okay. folks don't know who are watching this, I live in New Mexico, um, which is, uh, uh, in the United States ranks um, the lowest of the 50 states in terms of child welfare and also ranks the um, usually 49th or 50th uh, in education in the United States. So um, as beautiful as the land is and as beautiful as the cultures that occupy this land are, the vestiges of colonialism are such that, um, you know, there are parts of this state that function like a developing nation, um, mm. still developing um, even, you know, with its its rich cultural history. So, is there is there anything you want to close with for this part one? Um, sure, I'll just you know. Uh, so, Sonia Sanchez is uh, one of the 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 national treasures in the United States as uh, in terms of poetry and um, political activism, and uh, actually one of the pieces that. Um, that I had been working on that was, you know, considered an early hip hop theater piece um, was a, uh, a, a staged version of her poetry with Nikki Giovanni and Audre Lorde called Spirit to Spirit that kind of interestingly had this perpetual workshop thing. It never actually reached performance because we kept um, rotating performers as they got gigs and did other things. But it was this amazing, it, it had its own, it was a performance in its own right because so many it was, women, it was four women, three poets and a dancer, and so many people cycled in and out of it that we probably had about, you know, somewhere between, somewhere around 10 or 15 people work on this piece. And, and so it had its own life as research rather than as product. So anyhow, um, her, uh, Sonia Sanchez's first play, I think it's her first play um, that she wrote during, or it was an early play that she wrote during the Black Arts Movement of which she was a, a major part. Um, the title of the play is, uh-huh, but how do it free us? And so 
the the byword, you know, the 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 the, the benchmark um, that I set uh, in my own life and my own work, um, and that I share with my students and my colleagues. And when I'm working on a project, is um, both inside the rehearsal room, outside on the street, on the stage. Uh huh. But how do it free us? Now, don't forget to like, subscribe and share, because remember, that's how we grow. That's how we inspire. You can be the first to know about new videos and workshops that we're putting out online and also the podcast. Go visit it. Future Creatives. Enjoy.